Welcome to the Soul Sessions Podcast. Deep dive into the causes and real issues underlying addiction, codependency, emotional eating, weight concerns, and the trance of unworthiness. Tune in weekly to befriend, nourish, and heal body, feelings, mind, and soul. And now, your host, soul-centered psychotherapist, trauma expert, and mind-body eating coach, Jody Gale. Welcome to the Soul Sessions with Jody Gale podcast. I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which my office is based and across which we virtually meet and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening to this podcast. Today, my guest is Tina Rawlings. Tina is a qualified psychosynthesis therapeutic counsellor and therapist with over 20 years experience in offering psychotherapeutic interventions. Tina encourages creative methods of self-expression, including writing and art making. She gained a BA Honours in Humanities through her keen interest in the arts and is particularly drawn to the healing aspects of nature, spirituality and the outdoors in her work. She is a beekeeper and enjoys growing her own food. Recognising our profound human need to connect deeply with ourselves and others and knowing from her early experiences that horses can facilitate this connection led her to train in and offer equine facilitated therapy since 2009. She is a professionally registered member of BACP and trained in couples therapy at the Relational Academy in Cambridge. She likes to work with individuals, couples and groups and has long experience as a senior manager in day treatment services, working with families where there have been addictions and complex needs. She also worked in doctor surgery, supporting those referred for mild to moderate depression and anxiety. Tina currently works in private practice in Hertfordshire, where she also worked with a countrywide project treating those affected by trauma and complex loss. Welcome, Tina. Hi, Jodie. <laughs> Lovely to hear you. Yes, you too. So <laughs> I'm so excited to have you on the show because we have known each other, I think, was it 2000 when we started yeah. our training? Yeah, 2000. we in 2000, yeah. Yep, so we, we did our foundation year together in psychosynthesis. And for anyone who doesn't know what that is, it's a year-long program in personal development. And it's really the sort of foundation for going on to do any further training in psychosynthesis. They like us to do our own work. So we did that. And I guess you could say that it's kind of like traveling with a new family, isn't it? A new old yeah. family. <laughs> You're exactly right, Jodie. Um, yeah, and such a gift to have that year just focusing on ourselves. It was. And to me, it, when I think back, I just think back so fondly, like you were my soul sister, my family of choice, and, you know, travelling together was just so healing for me, and mm. I, I think I can say that you felt the same way. <laughs> Absolutely right, right back at you. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. we'll probably end up drifting off into conversations about yeah. that. <laughs> So we apologize in advance. So, so first of all, would you, I mean, I know I read your bio, but mm -hmm. could, that's obviously the professional sort of self. Can you yeah. tell our audience a bit about yourself and your personal experience with, with addiction, trauma, weight and body image concerns, and what brought you to this field of work? Yes, Jodie, uh, I guess as with a lot of us therapists, it was via my own psychological pain. 
growing up as I did in a dysfunctional family, my my parents were quite traumatized people in some ways. Mm. They managed really well, but they went through the um, Second World War, and a lot of those traumas went unacknowledged, and and we all suffered because of that. My dad developed problems with drink. My mom mm. dissociated from herself with Valium and others, and she used very controlling behaviour. So. I'm the youngest of three and we, we all coped as best we could with the fallout from kind of mm. losing those loving connections. It was nobody's fault, but, but they were wounded. And in some ways that had a huge traumatic impact on all of us. And what I found quite young when I was reached puberty, I guess, is that I kind of discovered I could get a high from starving mm. myself. And that way I could sort of dissociate from the painful reality. Yeah. And um. And I, I started counting calories. I became extremely fussy about food. And I suppose it did get me some kind of attention. And of course, it halted my physical, psychological, emotional development, not mm. eating properly. So it obviously isn't a, ultimately a good choice, but it was my choice and my solution, my creative mm. one. And I liked having a body which I could control and make it appear like a young boys almost and that way I wouldn't get my dad in particular I wouldn't get his attention so yeah okay but yeah and over the years starving always led to binging yo-yo weight loss and gain and the very control I sought led to more unmanageability and I hated myself and of course I didn't know that at the time I only know that kind of looking back and learning what I've learned but I also turned to academic achievements alongside that at school. So I threw myself into books, learning and pets instead of people. Mm. And that was a place I always went to. And I've always been very lucky to feel that kind of connection with nature and animals. They've always grounded me somehow mm -hmm. throughout my entire life. And that's the place I still feel most at home. So, and I guess what primed me most to do the work that I do is becoming very good at tuning in to and reading others as a way of counteracting the profound helplessness I felt inside. Yeah, that's really important uh, to acknowledge that, I think, because I think with a lot of trainings, people aren't, oh, well, they're spewing out counselling trainings like whatever these days. I think. A lot of people aren't really, they don't really have to do their own work. They don't have to do their own therapy and they don't realise that that's what's led them into this work. Yes, that can be very unconscious. And what I found as I became an adult, Jodie, is that I could look a good look mm. and, um, and I was, you know, people liked me. I was reliable. I was responsible. In fact, extremely so mm. to my own detriment sometimes. And I went into places where I could be in that role of helper such as social services and alcohol services. And of course, I was trying to heal myself. Yeah. But I thought, I thought, I'll go there and help these poor people. These <laughs> poor people. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm laughing because most people who come into counselling or therapy or mm -hmm. even nursing or doctors, yeah. whatever, we're all wounded healers. <laughs> you know? Yes, there's a lovely book, isn't there, about that called I'm Dying to Help You. Yeah, oh, I haven't read that. Okay. No, no, yeah. I mean, literally, it was killing me trying to help people. And, and yeah. I actually left social services because my boss, I went to away on holiday and I came back and my boss said at least nobody died while you were away none of your clients died 
Mm. And I got in my car and burst into tears because I thought, I cannot hold that responsibility for mm. someone else's life because ultimately we all have free will as human beings, don't yeah, we? And, yeah. and in those settings, it was just screwing me up emotionally all the time, trying to hold that terrible weight. And of course, that's the weight that I held in my family, trying to make it all right for everybody else when I couldn't. I don't think I've ever asked you this, but how did you then come to psychosynthesis? What happened is I became involved in helping a school friend with their alcoholism and their family members. And via that route, um, came into touch with an alcohol service. And I did their sort of alcohol awareness training. And Mm. then from that, I became a volunteer and did a sort of volunteer alcohol counsellors training for two years. But while I was in that service we had supervision groups and trainings and I came across a couple of people who were psychosynthesis trained and I just loved them and I loved the way they worked and I really what drew me was that really respectful approach that Mm. they had and they seemed to live out their true values and I suppose I just wanted what they had or they seemed to have and um, did a bit of research and and found the Institute of Psychosynthesis in Hendon and the story went from there really. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I mean you touched on this a little bit already well this I picked picked it up in in terms of your history but one of the things that I noticed particularly with um, weight concerns that you either end up down a, a sort of doctor medical route you need to lose weight or you need to do something with your weight or you end up in the medical model eating disorder sort of branch and really and and I don't know if it's I mean I haven't been in London for sort of what 12 13 years now so it might have changed there but certainly here in Australia trauma is very rarely mentioned when it comes Mm -hmm. to any of this stuff Um, and I what I heard you talking about was a trauma history in your own experience but from your perspective what do you see as the underlying I mean and look this is so so much more complex than just one question but what do you see as the underlying cause of you know I guess if we look at uh, eating concerns as a process addiction and a lot of people will be up in arms when they hear that we're not talking about a physical addiction although there's you know conflicting evidence about sugar and whatever but that's not the route we're going down you know if we're thinking about addiction eating concerns what do you see as the underlying cause causes sure i hope i can explain this as best i can yeah Um, i see addiction and eating concerns as a kind of solution psychosynthesis takes the view that us human beings are not broken therefore we don't need fixing at some level yeah but we we get into trouble sometimes we sort of go off course don't we and yeah and end up doing things that are essentially harmful so that's how i would view the starting point of any mm. addiction it never starts that way it usually begins as our creative solution if you like to suffering and almost all of us who develop these behaviors and i know this to be true of me mm. have suffered some sort of developmental or relational trauma yeah and it doesn't have to be you know physical sexual abuse necessarily but it can be through through neglect it can be through mm. not being seen and not being heard can be so detrimental to the human spirit Mm. cuts us off from from ourselves and other people and I believe that with myself certainly that was so painful Mm. because I'm a sensitive human being like most of us and the pain of people 
say ridiculing me for my sensitivity that's so common isn't it with uh-huh. um, i don't know about you but in my practice when girls come who or women who they've always been told you're too sensitive yeah and what that does i guess is a deep psychological emotional wound yeah and and we find a way to fix that and self-soothe i didn't have the adults around me just couldn't self-soothe themselves mm. let alone us so if we were in pain, it was, you know, either um, shut up and get on with it or I'll give you something to cry about or don't bother me now. And so I went somewhere. I went to a place deep inside myself where I was inconsolable. Mm-hmm. And then it was from that place that I found, aha, when I don't eat, when I'm focusing on counting calories and nothing else, then all that goes away. Mm-hmm. And of course, I could not have put that into words. I can do it now, but I couldn't have told you that's what was happening. But sure. Yeah, I had no method to self-soothe. And so I cut off from that healthy will, mm-hmm. the true self inside that sort of knew where I was going and knew what I was and had direction. I wasn't in touch with that anymore. So yeah, I just, it's a kind of false way of fixing yep. myself. And there's a lot of younger people who are going into specifically sort of eating, you know, when we get to the extreme ends of eating disorder treatment, hospitalized treatment and stuff. And I remember posting somewhere that uh, an eating disorder was a creative way of dealing with everything that you've just talked about. And a lot of the parents on the forum were like, what are you talking about? How, Uh How can this ever be creative? This is so destructive and what I'm hoping to do with this podcast actually is to talk more about a perspective like yours and mine how can this be creative well it's sort of going for the right kind of soothing like I said but Mm. obviously through a wrong route and addiction Mm. or or obsessive behaviors never start out as a problem no one picks up a glass of wine and says do you know what i think it's a good idea to become addicted to this stuff (laughs) you know or or nobody starts dieting thinking this is going to affect my entire life and i'll always be obsessed with food Mm. of course it's a solution Mm. and i'm not into blaming parents parents can often feel that they're at fault somehow or they're being criticised. Mm. But I, I think no human being goes without some relational wound along the way. Exactly. It's impossible to, to grow into adulthood and not, not be bashed about. It's not about bashing about parents either. It's just mm. about saying we do our best. And also it's sometimes to do with temperament. Mm. I look at myself and my sisters and we dealt with things in very different ways. But it had to be our way. I think that's... The human spirit has a a very unique approach to itself. I think that's something around sort of parent blaming. I think that's really, really important because, Mm -hmm. and, you know, there is more and more evidence to support childhood trauma theories and attachment theory, and Mm -hmm. which we've obviously been doing since the beginning of our training, but it's sort of really taken off in the last few years. And it's really around saying that the parents suffer trauma too. And I know even myself, you know, I mean, like me, you've probably got a massive uh, bookshelf of every book on the (laughs) planet. (laughs) And we still fuck up as parents, you know, Mm. even when you know all this stuff, you still make mistakes. Absolutely. Yeah. Because the, the, the wounded place in me, it's still raw sometimes. And, and 
especially around those people that I love and care about. You know, I go to a child place and I don't mean to, but I do. And I react from that place mm. sometimes. Mm. So I have to hold myself with compassion. And I guess that's the starting point for, for most of the work that you and I do. Yes. And it's a really good point for people listening out there that, that compassion is, you know, really, really called for, but also that we're not perfect either. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah yes. which is important, I think, for people listening. So you had an article mm-hmm. out a while ago. What is it about horses? And I just knew I had to have you come and talk about how horses help people. Yeah. So I, I'm not sure if I don't know if we ever really talked about this, but in my own childhood, I used to mm-hmm. escape my own dysfunctional family. I used to get on the plane on my own off to New Zealand from like very young. Gosh. And I'd go and stay with my grandparents where I would get up at 5am with my grandfather. He was Scottish. So we used to get up, eat porridge together. We'd go to the stables and uh, he was actually a sulky driver and trainer. And, you know, he, he would sort of hardly say two words to me, but I just felt so content there and just like being with the horses and you talk about your first experience with a horse in your article. Can you share the story with our listeners? Yeah. So I posted a picture of me when I was about 11 or 12 Mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm sitting next to a sort of done pony and I like this picture, this photo, because I look very calm and I know I felt anything but that in life at that age. And um, I was about 11 years old when I first went to the stables and Mm. I expressed a lot of anger in my family. My sisters used to say, you were always the one that was running up the stairs and slamming doors. But I felt very lost and unhappy and, of course, starving myself. Mm. And my friend Helen suggested going with her to the stables. And I went and I think I said it that my world just opened out and I said that phrase, here be dragons. Uh (laughs) They were like huge, exotic, wonderful creatures. And (laughs) I just could not believe that sense of awe around them. And the fact that they didn't want to bite or stomp on me. They were like, Oh hello. (laughs) (laughs) You know. And like you said, a lot of I don't know what it is about horse people, I, I guess I don't know, it attracts people or people grow up with them that themselves are quite wounded. And Mm. um, some of the people I've met in the horse world were very gruff and critical. But there was also something sort of fair about them and something kind of knowing. And I think the whole place attracted me because of that. Mm. And my sort of council estate world opened up and I just felt calm around them and they're so large and powerful, but they want to be in relationship with us. And mm. Monty Roberts, you know, the horse. Yes, uh, yes. Yeah. Most people have heard of him yeah. and his idea of join up. Join up, join, that's it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, that's fantastic because he demonstrates quite clearly how they want to cooperate and work with us. Mm. And it's a good idea not to force a horse like we can't force a human being to change. I couldn't be forced to change. But there's something about gentling and um, inviting that was so wonderful that, that I sort of got that, that way of being with a horse. And then I kind of started to feel a bit gentler towards myself. Um, wow. And I also wanted to be strong like the other girls because, you know, they're all kind of mucking out and shoving hay bales over their shoulder. And, of course, I was quite weak and skinny. Mm. And I kind of just 
looked again, like with the psychosynthesis trained people. Mm. I saw something out there that I wanted for myself. It's like that idea of something outside of me calls me, mm. calls me. And if I'm lucky, I can find a place within myself to respond to it, but mm. I can't be made to respond. So I started eating a bit better. I started learning some really good life lessons. My daughter says, because she rides and she's got mm. horses, and she says, you learn a lot of good life lessons around horses, mum. Wow. Um, you know, you know, she's so wise. So it's true. You know, it's true. I learned that sort of kindness goes a long way and gentleness mm. and sensitivity are valuable. Isn't this interesting? So, you know, my story is that when I first went into recovery, it was because of swimming with dolphins. And so what yeah. I'm hearing is that actually your recovery from your eating was because of being at the stables uh-huh. and... Yeah. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, I've always known that. And, you know, at times in my life, I've come away from that. And I I forgot to listen to the birds sing and go and Mm. see horses. And I can live like that, but not for long. And Mm. I find myself going back to it because there's something very, very okay and good Mm. for me there. So It's holding up a mirror too, isn't it? That that which we can't see and all of a sudden it's something there, which is of course what we missed out on in early childhood. Well, the mirror was broken. Yeah. 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 So what is it about horses that helps people heal? How can that help women struggling, for example, with addiction, codependency, disordered Mm. eating? And you've touched on that a little bit in your own story, but you know, from, yeah. I guess, being a therapist working with this stuff, what what do you think it is? Yeah. Well, horses don't have egos like human beings. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. So we have agendas, don't we? And, and we have adaptations. So, you know, I, I sometimes, I, like I said, I want to look a good look. I want to appear, like on this podcast, I want to come across as professional. But mm. there's also a bit of me that just wants to be real because you're my friend and yeah. I can relax a little bit. So those egos get in the way sometimes, don't yeah. they, when we're yeah. working with people. Um, there's, you know, there's no getting around that. We will develop an ego and, and, and that, that's there. So they don't have egos, they're, but they're very social animals like us. Mm. Their survival depends on tuning in emotionally to their other herd members so when danger comes Mm. they need to kind of know that the members of their herd are going to stick together as there's safety in being a herd you're less likely to get eaten if you run and you run together you're in a bunch you're less likely to get singled off and a lion jump on your back and devour you so Mm. they've got a vested interest if you like as uh, in as an animal group in tuning in to what exactly is going on in their emotional sphere. And that includes us humans. When we get inside their emotional bubble, they're a wonderful mirror, like you said, exactly true. They're good mirrors for us. Mm. And they're good mirrors for the true self. And there's something about them that we can intuitively trust because they also tune in to what's unconscious in us so like with clients who absolutely hate themselves Mm. you know they really feel full of shame and no one's going to like me and even contemplating going up with a horse they might say a horse is never going to go near me Mm. but what I've always found is that the horse seems to actively come forward to those people like ah I see you I know you you're in there 
This it's is so, so emotional. <laughs> it's so incredible too, because mm. my first episode, it's about my own recovery journey. So yeah. that's exactly, you know, for me, when I'm swimming with fungi, the wild dolphin, the shame and the putridness that I felt at the core of my being was instantly sort of dashed because in my own head I'm thinking dolphins are telepathic if he comes up to me I mustn't be that bad after all yeah exactly and that's exactly what you're talking about isn't it yeah and and often they really they meet us joyously don't they Mm. you know animals and they're picking up something that's sort of unconscious like you're saying in yourself and I know that to be true of me uh, that feeling well I can't be that bad absolutely and it's been split off hasn't it for some reason my connection with myself was split off because of that wound Mm. and and there's such healing in having that experience, maybe for the first time, the first ever time of yep. pure, unconditional love. Mm. I just I just love you. I accept you. You're who you are. And it doesn't matter what mm. you do, what shape you are, mm. where you come from, what you've done. I accept you. And that's just a world oh. of gold dust. <laughs> well, and so, just yeah. so, so powerful, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. for people yeah. who have spent, I mean, I know that you and I have worked with some pretty traumatized people and we're not talking about, I mean, we're talking about everyday people with, with pretty horrendous, I guess, neglect and trauma histories, but yeah. just that, that feeling, that first time of feeling like I, I can just imagine, you know, <laughs> the horse looking at this person in the eye oh. and just yeah. how, healing that must be for people yeah i have a friend who's a, an ex-heroin addict mm. and every time she came up to the stables with me not particularly to do the therapy but mm. she would just say hello to horses over the stable and every single time she came up she would burst into tears wow and i'd say to her what's going on and she'd just say the horse is looking at me and because of course the horse was seeing her and it's so it's such a soul to soul connection Mm. and very moving they want to trust us and they want to be in relationship with us and it's a bit mystical and um, there's a lot being written about this there's a a wonderful american lady called linda kohanov who runs the epona programs in america and she's written books like riding between the worlds and the Tao of Equus and um, which speak to that they mm. speak exactly to that about the mystical connection and the, the odd and beautiful thing is that it doesn't just heal us humans that horses have seemed to be more socialized through this work wow. where no riding is involved but they're connecting with humans in a different way mm. and it helps the horse to then connect with the herd members it's good for the horse as well as being good for you yeah, so I guess that sort of leads me on to my next question. And mm. I mean, I've never had equine therapy. I know my own experience around being near horses. And we went to New Zealand a couple of years ago and I was sort of adamant that I really wanted the kids to experience horse riding. And my little one was very anxious, but I just knew if I could actually get him to the stables, it would be okay. And sure yeah. enough, you know, this same thing, this horse just looked him in the eye, he got on there. And then, of course, my husband's horse did a poo in front of him. And so he just thought that was hilarious. So, But what actually happens in 
equine therapy. So for, for someone's listening, and I mean, I know listening to you talking, I'm thinking, I just want to go and do that like now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, you should. <laughs> so how does that work? I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a talk therapist. Mm. We sit both sit in the room and that's, yeah. I mean, obviously lots else goes on, but that's kind of it. What happens with equine therapy? How does that work? I'll try to explain it. Um, mm. And sometimes... When I was training, one of the trainers said, you know, people watching from a distance would think, what the hell are you doing? You're standing around looking at horses. <laughs> but there's so much is going on, so mm. much. And so the first session, it's gentle. So if, in particular for people who might have apprehensions, they might be a bit, all these animals, I've never been near a horse before. We take it gently. So the first encounter might be away from the stables, and often when I work with a group of people, we'll meet at a venue and we'll discuss, you know, what's attracted you to this? What is it? And, mm. and we'll meet and talk as a group. We'll discuss what goes on, maybe some of the safety issues, because they do have to be considered. And often I've worked with a horse handler. So somebody who really knows horses well and knows their psychology. So they're watching the horses and I'm really there for the people. Okay. because so much can go on so the first session usually after we've we've maybe met at a clinic or a, a service the first time we meet at the stables we'll do something called herd watching mm -hmm. so we'll just turn out a bunch of different shaped horses all different colors shapes and sizes mm. and we tell the group nothing about the horses we don't tell them their sex their their names because the idea is that um, it's very personal. We just say, here's a clipboard and some questions. And they might be, what do you see happening? Which horse do you feel drawn to? Is there any horse in particular that you, you really feel kind of repulsed by that you would never want to work with that horse? Um, who's in charge? So we give them a set of questions and they sit quietly by themselves. And it, we usually say half an hour, maybe 40 minutes. But mm. most people say that's gone so quick. <laughs> and of course when we debrief particularly in a group people have seen very different things and maybe for the first time they realize what we see out there is less about a truth mm. but it's more about who we are so yes. I might label a horse as a bully when mm. actually you know that horse is just moving the other horses because he can <laughs> you know it's not <laughs> bullying but you know I'm labeling that because maybe maybe I bully people maybe mm. I've experienced mm. bullying and I'm I'm hyper vigilant to that mm. so I guess that's the first session and then we usually work for between six to eight sessions because it sounds short but what we find is a lot of what people do experientially with the horses is quite naturally translated into life yeah. So we never say to people things like, um, well, you know, the way you work with that horse there, um, <laughs> maybe you could apply that to your relationship with your husband. <laughs> you know, it's just completely unnecessary because, okay. because it's like show, don't tell, isn't it? Yeah, if there's a deep okay. learning, it's, it's kind of taken in. Mm. And remember, too, that the horses are the therapeutic team. Yeah. So is they're not like a skipping rope or a, a piece of art material that you introduce into a session mm. they're a sentient being mm. and they are a therapist and they're there doing their job all the time yeah that's really powerful isn't it Gosh. yeah so we we may second third session invite people to work with the horse they feel drawn to 
And um, one lady that came up, she worked with a pair of Shetland ponies and they couldn't be separated. They were like like yin and yang. They'd been found rescued from a pub garden with the hooves all curling up. And... um, but that she had a wicked sense of humour, this woman, a really fine, lovely, joyous sense of humour. And um, she really didn't know this about herself, but she chose to work with them, and they were the funniest pair. <laughs> and the things they used to do with her, and the things she used to do with them, they had such fun. So people are kind of drawn to the horse they need. Yeah, gosh, that's amazing. And many, many women that we took up that had been, say, sexually assaulted or mm. abused chose a mare that had a lot of scarring down her body from, wow. they think, from being mounted by a stallion when either she wasn't ready or, or who knows what went on. Yeah. But she seemed to pick them out and they seemed to pick her out. And, of course, that's unconscious. You know what else I'm thinking as well? When you first started talking, you mm. said about, you know, you let them into the... I can't remember what you called it, whether it was the arena or, or wherever they go out to the pasture yeah. or wherever. And they're all different shapes and sizes. And I'm thinking, yeah. of course, of eating issues and mm-hmm. how naturally beings come in all different shapes and sizes. I mean, that's pretty obvious, yeah. but yeah. we seem to be the only population who like gives a shit about that, you know? Yes. Yes. And I'm thinking that horses don't care what they look like. No. <laughs> No, of course not. And that they're just very immediate in their bodies. Mm. They are their bodies, if you like. Their bodies are their brain and their emotions, just like with us, really. But mm. I suppose even more so because we have that kind of civilised away from us and the messages we receive from our culture about the right shape, the right size, how you should look, how you should be acceptable mm. when, you know, we're all different, we're all unique. Exactly. And I remember when I was swimming with Fungi, um, my own therapist, and I talk about this in my recovery episode around, you know, um, Penny, my therapist used to say to me, oh, does Fungi worry about what he eats? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> As yeah. if. <laughs> you know? yeah. they're, they're just very, very immediate, aren't they, in that yeah. sense, that when they're hungry, they eat and their genetic makeup dictates how they look mm. often. Mm. You know, usually if if horses tend to have behavioural problems like we do, mm. it's a, a response to something. You get horses that do this thing called weaving, which is like a repetitive movement. Mm. But um, studies show that that's calming in some way to the horse. So the horse is anxious. Yeah. That's an anxious horse, you know. I guess that's a good mirror for saying, actually, funny, strange things that we get up to Mm. are all right. You know, then we might want to change them and eventually we will. Mm. But acceptance has to be the first starting point for anything. Yeah, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, the same with therapy, isn't it? Yeah. And so, I mean, I, I was mm. going to ask you about, you know, whether you start, where you start off, but you've already included that. But do people mm. typically come afterward? I mean, you said sort of, you know, there's a series of sessions that you do. Do people, like, just say I came to you for therapy, not, yes. you know, like just talk therapy, and then I find out that you do equine or, mm. and then we do that. And then do they come back and have therapy around that? Or is this mm. something very specifically you go, you do the equine therapy and that's kind of it. Yeah, well, uh, the way I work is I like to be really flexible with that, Mm. Jodie. So Mm. I've had people come here to my practice and um, 
we've sat in in a clinic setting or mm. in my, my office and we've spoken about the background you know what they hope to get from it we just do a bit of relating to one another first mm. and I suppose I tend to try intuitively to get a feel for where somebody is yeah um, or if somebody's been maybe a couple of years ago and they've had some talking therapy with me they mm -hmm. might contact and say well I'm ready now I heard that you did this stuff can mm -hmm. we do it and so we might go straight up to the stables but we would always do a pre-brief session yep. to see what's in the person's field and my field so when we work with a group for instance we all sit around and we say you know what's going on today for people what are you with mm -hmm. it's like a check-in and sometimes we've used these lovely things called um equine archetype cards oh wonderful so um, yeah they're just brilliant and they're they're made in collaboration with an artist and linda kohanov but mm -hmm. we might say pick a card you know and maybe at some level that card might speak to you about where you're with to what you're with today and where you want to be or something that you need so um, we sit and we talk first and then we get in with the horses for maybe an hour, an hour and a half. And because animals are involved <laughs> and sometimes lots of people, I like to be a bit flexible. It's unlike the 50 minute, say, therapeutic hour. Sure. It can stretch a little bit, but I'll always say that to people mm -hmm. so they allow enough time because some things are unpredictable and we want to be responsive in the moment to what's going on. Yeah. I'm just thinking yeah. about those cards too, for, mm. for maybe perhaps mm. for someone who uh, would never have access to equine therapy, that even a set of cards like that could be really, really useful. I mean, I, I know myself, I draw a, a goddess card every morning and yeah. I bring a problem to the card and I'm, or I might say, you know, I'm starting work today. What message do you have for me? And it might be around, yeah. uh, you know, uh, fostering compassion or it might be around speak your truth or something like that yes. so I'm, I'm thinking with these horse cards that people could even tap into the power and the energy of equine therapy even if they don't have access to that for sure for sure because as you say there's something about connecting with the imagery and the metaphor mm. and the energy of that and and then feeling it in one's life or listening out for that energy is very powerful isn't mm. it Mm. Yeah. And I know with psychosynthesis, we do, um, it, we use a lot of that work in our, our work, don't we, where we're using words, images, symbols, mm. and uh, not yes. just taking it at face value, I guess, to, to always be looking yeah. for the deeper meaning within yeah, things. Look, so. Looking for something deeper, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So Tina, with, with what about, I mean, you know, someone might be listening to this thinking that sounds like great or or not mm -hmm. because horses are scary yeah. and they're big mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. they're intimidating and i really want to have what they're talking about i want to have this healing yeah. but but this is really scary and intimidating what would you say to them yeah okay well i'd say first off it's entirely understandable they scare the hell out of me sometimes you know mm. and um you know i'm not often around horses like not every day so, you know, I can feel scared around a huge, unpredictable creature. But what I'd say is it's okay to feel anxious or even frightened as long as you bring that honesty mm. into, into your work with the horse. So um, they're flight creatures. Their first response to danger is not to attack. 
and we would never ever use traumatized horses that are so traumatized they'll attack you kickers mm. or biters we do not use those we use kind of you know ordinary horses that people are around all the time that they're not going to attack you mm. and i would just say your fear is welcome bring it give it a go and we're gentle everything is done through the horse so in that sense it's non confrontational we would never force somebody to we would never for instance say well you've come for horse therapy now you better get in that arena with that horse haven't you <laughs> you know that would be so abusive to people yeah. and we had one lady come up it took her six sessions to get near a horse took mm. us six sessions mm. but we went with it and what we know is all the time the horse was working with her from yep. a distance yeah because don't forget their their emotional antennae go out a long long way mm. and their eyes are 360 vision almost are they? <laughs> they swivel around at the side of their heads okay. and it's i think it's the same with their kind of emotional antennae mm. so even if you're not right up close to a horse it will still be responding to you. Mm. So we could say to that woman, you're sitting outside the arena at distance. What do you see the horse doing now? What's going on for you? Mm. Um, or notice that the horse has moved its foot forward. And I notice that the horse is backing off or moving. And while the horse is doing those things, of course, there's all kinds of things going on or was in that, in that person. And she was able to say, when I feel that, yeah, I could get a bit closer to you. The horse's foot comes forward. Oh, so wow. we don't tell her that. She's experiencing it. Mm. When she's acknowledging something in herself, it's mirrored by the horse. Mm. Something real. And there's something that you, you've touched on a couple of times there that I want to highlight, and that's about welcoming the fear and the anxiety. Yeah. Because historically in psychology, there's been a lot of let's get rid of all that. Mm -hmm. And I know certainly psychosynthesis and um, acceptance commitment therapy, which I think Russ Harris mentioned had he mm -hmm. had learnt a lot from psychosynthesis for that, was around that welcoming in and actually having the fear and anxiety it's the judgment that's placed on, on, on being fearful oh. and anxious that actually becomes yeah. the problem. Not so much, yeah. you know, when we welcome those experiences mm. in and allow them, we're not re-traumatizing ourselves, I guess. And all the time of the horse is inviting you to be more congruent in that sense that when I was training, the trainer said, who's going to groom this horse? Mm. And I thought, bloody hell, I can do that. I can mm. do that. I know which brushes to use. And um, there's always people watching and I'll show them that I know about horses. So of course, my ego, my pride, <laughs> yep. you know, all those defenses kicked in. And uh, I probably wanted to show off a bit and I wanted them all to think well of me. Oh, she knows her stuff, doesn't she? Look at her. Mm. So um, that all went completely wrong because I got next <laughs> to the horse. I got next to the horse and, and the horse was chomping the hedge. It was stomping on my feet, <laughs> fidgeting about. And the woman said... Uh, let's just find out what's going on with you. <laughs> you really tune in to what's happening. Mm. And of course, I tried to be honest. I said, well, you know, I want you all to like me. I want you to think that I know what I'm doing. And she said, ah, oh, yeah, of course you do. Of course you do. It's understandable, isn't it? Yeah. But what would you really like to do with this force right now in this moment? Mm. And I got tearful because I was connecting with my real Mm. self and I, I just said I just want to put the brushes down mm. and run my my hand along the horse's back and as soon as the words 
they literally hadn't left my mouth. The, the horse gave a great big sigh, completely relaxed. Its head went down, oh, wow. it stood absolutely still, closed its eyes and let me run my hand along its back. Mm. And so I had an experience of tune in to the part of me that's real. And yeah. I don't know. Sometimes I just don't know what's real about me. and I don't even know I'm doing it. So, you know, when my defense is calm, I don't even know they're there sometimes. Mm. But if, if, if I'm invited by the horse to be in relationship with what I really want, something good can happen in relation. And it's okay, that mm. kind of welcoming. Mm. It's okay to tune into what I, I need and what I'm feeling right now. Yeah, that's so important. Feelings yeah, and needs. Yeah, yeah, very clear. Yeah. You know, it's um, it kind of doesn't matter where I start and, and finish. It always mm. kind of comes back to feelings and needs, doesn't it? Yes. Especially for people, we're talking about people with eating issues. So much of it is based around those early feelings not being mm. seen and, and heard and mirrored and regulated and needs mm. not being attended to. So It's being like, shamed, being shamed for having those needs. Yeah. And- yeah, like feeling, and then feeling too, ashamed because I have them, and feeling too much, not enough. Yes. So it's yeah. it's all about that, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, that just sounds fantastic. So I'm going to come back to your bio and and when I was reading it and you know around nature and spirituality and I know from spending time with you at summer school and I guess we have, we've got a funny little story <laughs> about you love being in nature and you used to camp oh, every year and yeah. one, one year I was I just wanted to be like you and, yeah. and be with you oh. and, and so we um I camped and it was bloody awful yeah yeah <laughs> that rain yeah. it just rained every single oh it was day, a terrible it? week yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I felt terrible because I really wanted you to have a good experience <laughs> I felt somehow responsible for the weather well yeah as we do but yeah, um yeah. I, I just laugh because I just remember <laughs> you saying obviously I had some very colorful language coming from the tent next door well, I still laugh about that I can still hear you <laughs> <laughs> but you know like you apart from that week but uh, you know I, I know that you love spending time in nature and yes, yeah. you know even up at our when at our very first training institute at Bill Hill it was such beautiful mm. grounds mm. and your home in Hertfordshire you back onto a beautiful what do you call that behind where you live is it a common or a oh, the, the meads it's the called meads. the meads yeah the meads. Sort of water meadow yeah. yeah yeah and I know that you love being in nature and you um, have that beautiful walk right by your home how yeah. how can people listen Listening today, you know, how, how can spending time in nature support someone recovering from everything that we've been talking about today? Yeah, well, I guess those things we've been talking about, eating problems, mm. addictions, obsessions, they take us into a sort of trance-like state, don't they, where we're, mm. we've gone off somewhere. Mm. We're not um, in tune with ourselves or, or others. And nature invites us to be in the here and now through its immediacy, its sights, its sounds. It's never been more apparent through lockdown how mm. important those connections with nature have been to people to get them through these tough times. And I can be very absorbed in work, chores, lost in memories or feelings. As a human, I can kind of move my focus mm. around in that way. But um just to focus on what's in front of me, um, a more mindful connection to something that's larger and benign. It's just there for me. And it's kind of offered as a mirror, 
um, mm. and and it teaches me to to just be in the here and now and feel connected because nature is everywhere it's within everyone and I, I tend to feel that interconnectedness of everything when I'm in nature that I can kind of remove myself from if I've got my head in the computer or mm. I'm washing the kitchen floor or I'm thinking about what I've got to get for the shopping so it, it forces me to be in the here and now and its rhythms the experience of light air weather the outdoors it I think we suffer a lot in civilized mm. society from being removed from that I, there's a guy called Richard Louvre who wrote about nature deficit disorder oh yes yes I didn't yeah. know his name but I, I certainly know that term yep yeah, so I think it's something we suffer from, whether we have developed addictions or other problems, all human beings can suffer from that. And like I said, there's been times when I forget to listen to the birds and then suddenly I hear them and I think, mm. oh, where were you? But they've always been there. It's a constant and it's a benign force, if you like, for me to connect with that reminds me of kind of higher consciousness, higher self. It's mm. bigger than me. It's, as I say, benign and it's wild. It's unpredictable mm. and wild, but I can be in relationship with it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I actually just posted a blog post today about um, forest bathing, actually. And, oh, wow. Yeah, and just yeah. and just thinking part of that was thinking about the seasons and how it really teaches us about change and, you know, that immediacy that you're talking about around the way if you, if you were to do and you must do this because you walk behind you know in your meads if you do yeah. the same walk every day for a year how yeah. it's a cycle and things change mm. and well we're disconnected from self when we're disconnected yes. from nature yes being disconnected from self also disconnects us from nature it's like a cycle in itself isn't it mm -hmm. <laughs> so yes and it's good to be sad and mm. it's good to have our emotions about what's happening mm. on the planet and you know exactly those lovely meads. I'm sure if you came here now 20, well, nearly 20 years later, mm. you would see a lot of differences and you might see that some species have disappeared altogether, yeah. other species have taken over. Yeah, um, okay. Yeah, it's good to be in relationship with that in a way because it's important. Well, it is. And, you know, I don't know if there's any Indigenous Australians listening to the podcast, but this is certainly mm -hmm. something that as Australia, we, mm -hmm. you know, in our own history, that's caused great yeah. suffering is that disconnection yeah. and the removal from country and land. And, yeah. you know, it's a spiritual crisis, actually, not just a, mm -hmm. a sort of emotional crisis. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so it's, yeah. it's, it's big, isn't it? So yes. um, yeah. one of the other things I noticed on your website, which I was quite intrigued about, uh -huh. you've become a beekeeper. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> where, where do you keep them? Are they in your, I love your, your beautiful back garden. Are they, do you keep them in your back garden or are they somewhere well, else? They tend, they, they tend to swarm and I'm right on a footpath, as you say, at the back gate. So, mm. and I've got neighbours with children. So okay. I keep them about, well, three four miles away um at a uh -huh. college they've got some grounds and they're right behind some outbuildings uh -huh. so right out of the way and they've got enough foraging food mm. there for them so that that's great and they tend to thrive i mean i've learned a lot from beekeeping and in a similar vein to the horses they're communal insects creatures and they mirror that interconnectedness for us humans mm. that I can sometimes lose sight of that yes I'm a unique individual but I'm also connected to 
people in my town, people mm. in the planet, I'm, I'm connected. And they work together. They're a good mirror for, uh, the Germans have a word for the oneness of the hive called mm. the Bion, B-I-O-N of the uh -huh. hive. Okay. Yeah, so it's a term that describes how it's one mind, one consciousness. So okay. yes, there's the individuals, but it works It works as one mind. And it's a wild thing, a bee colony, but and I need to be in relationship with it. What I noticed is I'm all done up in my bee suit with my gear on, oh, yeah. and I know that I'm kind of safe, but um, I have been stung and it's really unpleasant. And they're scary and sometimes they let off a roar, which is different to nice gentle hum they're not happy about something really and then i get anxious but the more i get anxious they pick up the fear pheromone mm. and the more they're kind of pinging off my helmet trying to get me and so they're wow. a good mirror they're mm. a good mirror mm. so mm. you know in a way before i go into the bees it's a good idea to center and ground myself and and connect with it's okay whatever happens it's okay you know mm, i might have to just mm, seal the hive up and walk mm, away if they're mm, too angry today and i'll go back another time mm, so i suppose it's just being responsive to what is rather than forcing something and that's exactly what you were saying around the um mm. equine therapy as well isn't yeah. it so it's yeah coming uh, back to yeah. the same sort of theme so you, yes. you've, you've mentioned a few times throughout our conversation around connection and in relationship and I actually love this paragraph on your website so so we're going to just move into talking about therapy a little bit the relationship with your counselor is crucial to any work done together I work gently and kindly I'm aware that as human beings we may have been hurt or wounded in relationship with ourselves and others and this is why the relationship with a counselor can heal so from your perspective why is the relationship so central to healing well, I guess for traumatised people like myself, we need to experience something reparative, don't we? Mm. Something repairing. You know, I as a therapist, I might have read a few books and have a few strategies and tools, but those are not going to be taken up by somebody who doesn't feel attuned with or related to. It's just like shoving a book at somebody and saying, mm. read that mm. and you'll be all mm. right. It's not, not being about relationship and Relational, relational or developmental trauma can leave us alienated from ourselves and others. Mm. So I suppose it's important to find a way to manage that mm. and connect. We're relational beings, so that reparative experience with a trusted other is crucial to any healing. Mm. That's where I'm coming from. Um, yeah, I, I think there's a lot I could say about that, but empathy, no, compassion, yeah, I think unconditional regard. Yeah. Absolutely. So the trust can be built, really. I think we have a nice term, don't we, Jodie, in psychosynthesis. Mm. We have that term, external unifying centre. Exactly. So we don't have to use those kind of therapeutic terms with people. No, we're always holding that as the context yes. for our, our work. The um, yes. yes, I mean, in 20 years of working with clients, I've probably said that twice to, to the <laughs> client, but you're always holding that that's the that's what you're mirroring back to the client mm. and, and through that relationship. And, and I think just to explain to people who may not know relational trauma, developmental trauma, mm. it's, it's trauma that happens within the relationship. So yeah. where the person has not been seen or heard that, that there's been a lack of attunement to the feelings and needs. And so the wounding happened in relationship and can therefore oh. be repaired in relationship. 
exactly exactly that's so well put and i know because i've had lots of therapy Mm. i've had some really good people but for whatever reason and i'm not blaming them and i'm not Mm -hmm. blaming me there wasn't a good enough fit Mm. so we kind of sort of missed each other Mm. in some way and when we're missed it's repeating that wound and we need not to be missed that's right and so you also write on your website that you work with women to discover their true selves and quote together it is my experience that you can move towards reconnecting with the person you were always meant to be and to reconnect with who you really are so my experience is often prior to and maybe at the start of therapy so women struggling with you know chronic low self-worth um you know that that self-worth that under the chronic low self-worth that underlies many of the concerns that we're talking about. And, you know, they feel so poorly about themselves and they often, as we discussed earlier, feel rotten all the way to the core. What if women who are listening today, they believe, for example, that, you know, that the, the eating disorder self is their true self, because we know that I know when I first went to therapy, I had no idea that there was more than one self. <laughs> I just thought I was my eating disorder and my addiction and all my other crazy behaviors that I was acting out. And also thinking, you know, that they feel pretty shit about themselves. And I, I'm thinking, why the fuck would I want you to see my true self when I believe it to be putrid? Absolutely. I guess I can relate to that completely. Mm. You know, having a big F off written on my forehead because (laughs) you're not going to get in because Mm. this is who I am and you're not going to change me. And I'm because I'm scared to change. And Mm. I know that utter core feeling of complete shame Mm. and being identified with what I do. And also very invested in what I do because somehow it's keeping me safe. Yeah, I'm not going to let you in, like I said. And if I'm doing that, I'm identifying myself only through the lens of my eating problems or addictions Mm. or pathology. And I would say that it's okay for people to feel that way. Many Mm. people feel that way and carry a lot of shame. And I'm also being sensitive to and holding the knowledge that that's there because they have been profoundly hurt. Yeah, and this is a defence. And I would wait and empathize with them and wait some more because no one can be forced to give up our coping strategy until it begins to feel safe enough. I have to feel accepted. Oh, that's where you are. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. And um, I had a really good, um, she was relate trained person when I, where I said I volunteered first with the alcohol service Mm. and um, she was psychodynamically trained, but Mm. she always said to us, empathize meet somebody where they are first not where you think they should be yeah or, absolutely. You know, but, but always always keep mirroring back the healthy part that you hear mm. so i would say you're feeling this you're feeling that maybe you don't even want to be here maybe you don't even want to talk to me or or, or say anything but something healthy in you made you keep the appointment you're here yeah and that way what i'm doing there is i'm i'm not acknowledging the identification with the eating disorder i'm identifying the healthy self that wants to be that knows i'm more than this i know i'm there and i know i'm invested in keeping it that way and i'm scared to let go of it but you also have the bit that's got you here 
yeah. you're reaching out and that's that's important to acknowledge As, uh, you know i know how much it took me to to reach out for help it was almost impossible yeah so important and to really begin to foster that that healthy mm. self and you know I, I might have mentioned this and i think i spoke to carolyn coston about it and well, we certainly say in psychosynthesis that sort of five percent healthy self gets us to therapy and then we're kind yes. of working with the other 95 yeah. percent the rest of the time but it's it's yeah. it's really helping that that and and saying to people it doesn't matter how wounded you feel that there is a healthy self there that got you here and then our work is to help sort of grow that but but also being compassionate and patient with those other parts that do feel stuck yeah and you're holding the context that the eating disorder isn't you wouldn't argue with somebody of course but you're holding that context the bifocal vision we have that don't we Yeah. yeah so yeah yeah yeah, so um, I am going to do an episode on that actually, bifocal vision, oh, but just lovely. for just for people who haven't, I don't yeah. know when that's going to be. But that's we look in two directions. We look at the 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 soul and spirit and the essence of of someone, and then the ego and the behaviours and the maintaining cycles. And I guess that's that's a very brief. Expo- Is that how you would would describe it, Tina? Or yeah, add, exactly. Add something because, to that. Yeah, well, we're, we're, we're we're trying in psychosynthesis and some other therapies do that to see and really acknowledge the part that suffers, as you say, is stuck in those maintaining cycles. But we're holding awareness of the person's wholeness, which mm. has always mm. been there and always will be there. Um, but sometimes, you know, I've lost touch with that part and I still can sometimes. I feel more mm. identified with different parts of me in different situations of course. around some people. Well, especially too, you know, with coronavirus, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, therapists have never lived through this, through a mm-hmm. pandemic. So, you know, a lot of us have been yeah. catapulted into our old patterns and stuckness and fear and anxieties and all that kind of stuff because we're, we're human too. So Absolutely. And I think that too is quite useful. I think it can be quite con- controversial in some circles about self-disclosing as a therapist, but sometimes you can literally see people exhale mm. when you do a little bit of that it has to be timely of course doesn't mm, it of but course just to say yeah i've been there i know mm. how tough this is mm. and to feel the weight of that i i know that yeah absolutely. i can be with that because i've i've known it it's important and we're not perfect as you said earlier so when we think about therapy and you know one of my missions in life is to um be an advocate for therapy so you know there are a lot of sort of quick fixes short-term solutions a lot of acronym based therapies out there and they're often sort of sold as part of i'm not sure in the uk maybe through the nhs but certainly here through medicare uh, you know people get three to six sessions and that that's good like that that people can get that support but it's it's rarely enough in my opinion but um you know i love singing the praises of weekly depth psychotherapy why do you think we need depth psychotherapy now more than ever before yeah well that's a great question isn't it and yeah. i like you I, I feel passionate about it so more than ever, we live in a world of partial attention, don't we? Mm. And, um, quick fixes abound, sound bites, memes. Anyone with access to Google to problem solve can do it. And of course, there's a place for that, and there's a place for short-term answers, ways to manage that can all be very helpful. But sometimes, if we keep the work of self-discovery and healing within that conscious realm only, 
it remains change remains at that superficial level and mm. often it isn't sustained you know i might i might i don't know stop drinking or manage my food behaviors better for a while mm. but my own experience is those true and lasting changes that go on there's kind of paradigm shifts if you like within a person yeah they only happen when we touch on we're only touching on part of life aren't we when we do the the first level change we talked about, the quick fixes. Well, it's the, it's the moving the furniture. I call it moving the furniture. <laughs> That's I think, great. Yeah. I think yeah. Roger, Roger from our training institute <laughs> call it that. Lovely, Roger. Brilliant. Well, I'm glad you remember. My memory's mm. terrible, but that's such a good phrase, isn't mm. it? And mm. we're missing out on, on a whole deeper unconscious life that goes on and operates. Mm. Those energies that are beyond the conscious realm that, that drive my behaviours. You know, mm. I don't mean to be a certain way, but I find myself speaking a certain way or behaving a certain way. And I think, where did that come from? Mm. So I guess that... that um, you know, in 12-step recovery, that will be called a spiritual awakening, that yeah, deeper yeah. level change, that paradigm shift that occurs in many people mm. in recovery. And that comes about through a lot of soul-searching, a lot of deep work, and a, and a lot of work that comes through deep looking, maybe at dreams, slips of the tongue and metaphor, mm. our creative mm. engagements. Like you said, it's um, drawing, making art, that gives us a fuller picture about a person. And a depth psychology kind of slows things right down, mm. widens them out and pays attention to those larger experiences, those energies at play. I think this is so important because, yeah. you know, what, what we sort of say here on the Medicare sort of system, it's like revolving door syndrome. You know, you yes. get your so many sessions a year and then you come back mm -hmm. the following year. And what we know is when, when most of these issues that people are coming for help for anxiety, depression, whatever it is, uh, it, it's typically rooted in trauma, which isn't being acknowledged. We've already said that it's the relationship that's that's caused the wounding, and if you're having three sessions here, three sessions there, it's it's useful to, to as a stopgap, but it doesn't actually heal that those deep relational wounds inside of oneself. Yes, and it's like being with somebody who's curious, who's really paying close attention, mm. and the paying close attention is so important, isn't it? It is. Mm, let's wonder together about that. So, what is that about mm. and how would you describe it if you drew it what would it look like and then we look at yep. it together and I don't say oh well you know what that means that doesn't it <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. because because you know it's about show don't tell somebody's mm. giving you the privilege and they're saying help me to look inside myself and find out exactly why and what it is I'm doing because mm. there's a sense to it there's a logic there's a there's a deep psychological logic to even the weirdest things that we mm, get up to. Mm. You know, I learned that in the training, you know, yeah, absolutely. Wond wondering why still in my adult life, I kept a peapot under my bed, you know, and, mm, and mm. helping, you know, to someone helping me to think about that. Um, it's something I never disclosed to anybody. I don't do it now. I don't mm. need to because mm. somehow mm. I've worked that through. But it came from, from fears in childhood about yeah. not being able to leave my bedroom and uh, I'm wanting to pee and not being able to leave my room. And I was still doing that in adulthood. You know? mm. So um, it's good to sort of say, how does this serve me? What's really going on? And that's why horses are so good. I mean, they're just brilliant because mm. the learning sticks because 
it's a depth psychotherapy, even though it might be a short number of sessions. Yeah. The horse is mirroring what's unconscious. Yeah, very and, um, deep. Yeah, it's very deep, Jodie, yeah. Well, I mean, we've run over, but I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I think people yeah. are really, really, really going to get a lot out of your wisdom, Tina, and just hearing you talk, it just makes me miss you. And Oh, I miss you too. <laughs> and yeah. I wish I, you know, like I, I, I've got to say, you know, moving home is obviously fantastic, but I really, really miss my psychotherapeutic mm. community over there and, yeah. Yeah. you know, just listening to you talk mm. and connecting around psychosynthesis, it obviously really... Um, moves me and touches my heart that's where my yeah. passion lies and yeah. you know I, th I think women listening today are really going to have a lot to take away but they're going to be moved at a soul level I think by listening to you talk I hope so Jodie you do fantastic work and um, it's, it's no coincidence that we're doing this just a few weeks after you would have been coming to the UK I know and we would have met up I know. <laughs> had all this not been going on I'm know. still still mourning the loss, still mourning the loss of that but um yes we have credit so I will absolutely yeah. um you know hopefully well I don't know maybe next year or, or the year after so fingers crossed yeah, you always have a place in my heart and you have a place in my home if ever you want to come here. Thank you. So thank you so much yeah. for coming today. And Thanks. I'm thinking, I, you know, I'm going to come up with something to have you back for another episode, I think. So <laughs> <laughs> it's been so wonderful talking to you. Yeah, great. So thank, thank you. Thank you, Tina. And we'll speak soon. Thank you. This is episode 11. For the show notes, go to thesoulcenter.online forward slash soul sessions 11 horses help us heal thanks for listening bye for now thank you for listening to the soul sessions podcast love this episode head over to itunes to subscribe rate and leave a review it's very much appreciated thank you to learn more about how you can befriend your body feelings mind and soul get jody's free 65 page ebook at thesoulcenter.online until next time